Hi, I'm Sarah Fry. Welcome to Patent Pod. Computer science education can deepen learning in other subject areas. It promotes creativity, collaboration, and critical thinking, and it equips students with knowledge and skills to pursue a wide range of career pathways. CS education has expanded rapidly in Pennsylvania and remains a priority today. Joining us today to discuss the critical need to increase and diversify student engagement in computer science is a very special guest. I'm pleased to welcome Nicole Jackson. Nicole is a nationally recognized leader and mentor in CS and STEM. Nicole, thank you for joining us. Thank you. To begin, could you walk us through a little bit about your journey in computer science and STEM? Sure. Um, I would say it's what a person would call a non-traditional path. Um, actually, I uh, had zero interest in STEM. I had zero interest in computer science growing up. I was a um, poet and a cellist and um, <clears throat> you know there came a point where I remember distinctly uh, my mother trying to convince me that I um, had an innate skill um, that was highly logical primarily because I was very argumentative. I was very good at pointing out every logical flaw in every single thing that she said or that my father said or that any adult said and she told me that instead of being resistant I should probably pursue something where I could use that as a skill set. But I wasn't really interested in it to be totally honest with you. Um, it wasn't until about middle of high school um, that I really began to excel. I had been in gifted and talented programs, but I had tried to apply as much of myself as possible um, to the arts. Um, probably because I'm from East Orange, New Jersey, that's like where Whitney Houston's from and where you know, Queen Latifah's from. And so uh, there's this juxtaposed position, right? Where uh, we have an environment um, that's highly creative, and then we have this thing um, where like the most we had worked with computers was on the Oregon Trail. I didn't really care, it was like the very beginning of it. I didn't care about anything they were doing. Um, but in middle school and high school specifically, um, I excelled in STEM courses, um, but I actually didn't really care. Um, by the time I was in high school, I had done well in biology, I had done well in chemistry, but I don't even think I went to class in high school. I'm, not, I'm gonna be very transparent with my level of interest. That was when I, primarily, that was when I made decisions to cut class, that was when I made the decision not to attend um, because I cared more about um, going to music or going to an art class or going to a writing class. Um, you know, finally, by the time I left um, high school, uh, which was also in a very non-traditional way, I actually am a high school dropout, um, which is something that most people do not know. Um, I found myself at a, at a really interesting um, pathway in my life. Um, I left school and I became a mom and I went to the military in that exact order. And I hit a moment where I had a need um, to learn something that was going to get me somewhere but not a direct path. Um, I understood problems, I understood things that could exist. Um, but I also was very much dedicated to this idea of being in the arts, but that looked like it was getting away from me because of the mom now um, and because life was very real. And so um, right after um, joining the military, I decided to go to college and I knew one thing. I was looking at the jobs that existed in the world. I was looking at um, the degree that I did not have. Um, and so I got a degree and I went to a job interview for something that had nothing to do with STEM, but just happened to be in STEM. 
Um, I had interviewed for an office manager position, which is a running joke, I promise you, because if anyone ever knew me, I was a military police officer. There's no part of me that should ever exist or work in an office, none. I'm not, that, I'm not hospitable in that way at all. Um, but it just happened to be um, with a CEO, with a small business owner of um, something called a prescription drug monitoring program. And this gentleman you know, asked me, why are you here interviewing? And I said, well, um, I need a job. First thing, um, the economy is horrible, you're hiring, and I need a job, I have a child to take care of. And he said, okay, well, let me tell you a bit about what we do. And he told me about a prescription drug monitoring program, um, what it is, that would give you at a very high level. Um, it is a tracking program for a schedule um, one through four medications. Most people don't know your medications are on the schedule, they are. Um, it specifically tracks schedule three and four, which are medications that have to be prescribed by a physician and have a tendency to create um, either addiction or some other um, or some other mechanism of impact in a person's life. And um, I actually started arguing with him about his program. Um, I asked them questions about, you know, how effective could it truly be? Um, this is before the opioid crisis. This is when people began to really track them. Um, what the difference between interstate and intrastate tracking was. That's because I had been a military police officer and understand how um, different mechanisms work and systems and how um, illicit activity can transpire. And uh, I poked a lot of holes in uh, the system that he had built. He called me three days later and said, hey, um, I'm not hiring you as an office manager. I think that you would be horrible at it, just so you know, I think you're right. Um, he's like, your personality is not what, what you think it is. He was like, but I do think that there's potential for you as a business systems analyst and would like to see you in my office um, next week if you'd like to talk about it. And um, that was my first foray into uh, technology. I had to learn a lot very quickly. Um, and so it's an interesting path, right? Um, Path number one is uh, I was an artist and a creative. Um, path number two is how do we apply that artistic ability and creativity to technology? Well, um, at the time, he had maybe about seven or eight states under his belt um, as a national program. Um, by the time I left two years later, we had 30. And that was because I rewrote um, how not only his system worked and how it should work based on inter and intrastate activity, um, but I also reimagined how he responded to RFPs, requests for proposals. Um, and in that process, I was able to work alongside the engineers and I picked up all kinds of skill sets like um, SQL. I learned how to query databases and um, I learned how to write requirements and I had to learn databases in general. How do they work? How do they not work? Um, and that led to an entire career in understanding systems, understanding databases, understanding and learning how to data model, um, understanding technical architecture, understanding cloud architecture, understanding um, how enterprise data warehouses work to scale systems and its entire career in health IT. And um, all of that was based on being able to apply the things that I knew to something that I could do to solve a problem. And I think that's the, the cleanest journey, uh, cleanest way to describe that journey. Well, personally, I think you're missing out on kind of this stage of your journey yeah. because you are now a nationally recognized mentor. You're working with nonprofits and um, students at HBCUs. How how do how do we see our I'm saying we how do you yeah. let's put the value on your path? How do you see that leap of those moments yeah. to bring you today? Yeah, so. <clears throat> the best way to describe it, um, my very next job after that one was in a startup. 
And every single startup I went to, people were very mature in their careers. Like I got to learn literally from some of the smartest people in the country. Um, the, the second organization I worked for uh, was with a data model built out of the Ohio State University. And um, in working in that data model, I was able to understand um, how national healthcare programs worked. And I was able to work with these national experts, some of the best data scientists in the world worked on that team. And so very mature people who were able to just kind of open up and say, what do you want to learn? And I was able to navigate the entire organization and say, okay, I'm going to learn um, how to actually do data modeling with data modeling tools. Okay, now I'm going to learn um, the ETL process, how we extract, transfer, and load data and what systems and tools do that. And I'm now going to learn how to run an entire organization. So at one point, you know, in the startup world, you get a lot of exposure very quickly. So um, I was able to pick up skill sets and I learned how to quite literally release code and how to manage teams through releasing code and then how to build a product from what we call zero to one in space. But it's an interesting path. So it took me from that space into San Francisco at one point where I worked in a, a leading startup there, one login. And I was their release engineer working with literally the best in class software engineers in San Francisco. And from there, I ended up in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I ended up taking a look at people's products and saying, what, how do I scale this product? Can it scale? Why would it scale? I got to learn um, macroeconomics and how we apply um, deep thought into that space. And by the time I made it back to Columbus, um, I got my first uh, software uh, engineered leadership role, right? I was a, um, director of software and technology, and I was working with uh, another startup group, and I ended up with this mobile application team as their director of product development. And this was a completely different environment because the startup could not afford best-in-class software engineers. So this is, this is where the friction came. Everyone I worked with before was best-in-class until I got to this point where I had really smart engineers, um, but there were like four of them instead of like 30 of them. And we had to develop an internship program because we had to figure out a different way to scale. And that was picking um, talent from Ohio State and the University of Michigan and Michigan State and Johns Hopkins and all over the country who would be willing to come into this space and to work alongside us to scale and to grow and to learn. And that was a much different world than the world that I had been in. So, so we had, um, you know, four or five really good engineers, but we had to start really looking at talent um, in the college setting. So I had to figure out how to do that. And that was a different world altogether. How do you teach someone technical innovation and creativity instead of just benefiting from all of these really senior intelligent people who've been doing this fluidly for years? So we had um, a really robust internship program. And I realized, you know, in the process, I was thinking about going to get a master's degree. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I looked at, um, you know, information systems programs at Ohio State and everywhere else. And I said, hmm, I don't think that's the problem that I'm actually dealing with right now. I think I might be actually dealing with an issue of learning because I had students who would come in and they wanted so badly for the answer to be A, B, C, or D. But in the technical innovation space, we create the answer. Um, it is not transparent, especially in healthcare. It's never transparent. And so we would bring our team members in. I started noticing a pattern. It normally took roughly about 12 to 15 months for a student 
to reimagine how they understood what they had learned in the computer science program when they were innovating with us. And that's because we would adopt um, and lead into the bleeding edge or leading edge of technology to say, how do we pick a new piece of technology up into a mobile space? How do we transform the experience of a patient in a hospital setting? How do we create solutions for hospitals and individuals? Um, and it was a very different mindset. So I started looking at programs. I found the creativity and innovation program at Drexel University. And um, my very first two classes, I got a uh, F in both classes because when I opened up the textbook, um, there was a brain. And I was trying to figure out what a brain had to do with gifted and talented people and creativity and innovation. Mental models can be a blocker. I came in with a mindset that I was going to learn one thing or do one thing. And when I began to look at the program and when I began to read the textbooks, it was something totally different. So after feeling like a total failure, I said, okay, you know what? I have a career, it's fine. I remember at a very specific point, um, there was a piece of software we were delivering for, of all people, Penn State, true story. Um, we used to build their mobile platform for um, their HIV and AIDS program. And we had a lot of drop off at a couple specific pages. And I couldn't figure out why people were dropping off at those specific pages in this mobile application. I literally couldn't figure it out. And I was staring at it one day and I said, huh, I remember reading something about cognitive load theory. Where did I read that? I read it in one of those textbooks. I just got an F in, okay. So I went back to the textbook and I read it and I said, the theory states that human beings cannot process more than five things in any given time in working memory. Um, it's about the semantic uh, memory layer in the brain. And I said, huh, I wonder if that's actually what's wrong with the way we built this mobile application. So I worked alongside the UX engineer and I said, let's try it. And sure enough, it was the amount of information and the way that we asked people to process the information that was causing the triggering effect. We did some A-B testing, we release it. All of a sudden, we're getting a better response with our applications. So I went back and I kept reading that textbook. And every single time I read something in the textbook and I applied it in real time to how I was building software, I started to notice a better outcome and how I was quite literally developing products. So I went back to school and I took a look at every single class they had in that program. And every single time I thought that there was a problem that I was facing, whether or not it was with how I built a high performing team or helped an intern scale, um, all the way through to how I built the solution, I would try to align as best as I could the class I was taking at Drexel um, to what I was delivering. And that's when I figured out the rhythm of technical creativity. It's about the application of what we're trying to build, the right information at the right time in the right way, and that's how I started mentoring. Because I then began to realize that the students who were coming in, that 12 to 15 month process, was actually about how I was applying what they were learning. So I took 12 to 15 months and turned it into six months. And I said, can I take a student and in six months transform the way that they think that they understand how we're going to build in such a way that optimizes the way that they learn? And sure enough, I started noticing, and so did Meta, which used to be Facebook at the time, and so did Tesla, and so did Google, that our students that we were building had a lot of potential. So they kept picking my students off. And it created a funnel where students knew that they could come to this team, they could learn, they could learn very quickly, they could build best-in-class software, and they could leave. And then that process, we ended up um, scaling pretty quickly. I started out as a director of product, 
I left that team as their chief technology officer. Um, we were actually acquired uh, with a team called Deliver Health. Um, they were through an acquisition from Nuance, which is an AI organization that was purchased by Microsoft for $27 billion in 2020. And um, from there, um, you know, I started mentoring a lot more. I mentored alongside um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, I was one of 125 women selected um, by this organization to mentor at scale across the United States, right in time for COVID in 2019, and did that in the classroom. And um, when there were no classrooms because kids went home, we did it remotely, and I ended up mentoring about 1,200 students across the United States during that time um, in a remote platform at the time called Nepris. It's now Pathful. And um, from there, it started to change me. It really started to affect me. Um, and now I mentor with the National Technology and Science Medals Foundation, um, Howard University, and I mentor um, adults um, wherever they need me to mentor them. Um, I mentor at my job. I mentor everybody. If, if you need, what do you need to learn and what can I teach you? And that's pretty much how I've uh, scaled and grown in my career. We might not let you leave. I, I could probably <laughs> use some help. Um, I think, one, thank you so much that having those details really does help provide some context for your, one, I love your candor, um, but the value in that experience is, is so valuable. Um, especially your journey, not only into computer science, but learning and mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. is, is super helpful. Um, you know, we have conversations in education broad scale, but specifically in computer science and STEM learning about inequities of access, of engagement, of mentoring and mm -hmm. retention efforts for our female students, for our members of our LG, LGBTQIA population for our individuals who have disabilities. From your perspectives, in so many different avenues, in so many different places in our society, using technology, leveraging education and mentoring, where do you see those inequities carrying from our world in K-12 education into the workforce, into our society? Sure. Um, I think first it's about the lack of understanding of the impact of environment. So. You know, I started out talking about, you know, where it's from. So I'm going to go a little deeper into that. Um, so I'm from East Orange, New Jersey. And um, listen, I was raised there, you know, maybe a decade and a half or so outside of the aftermath of, you know, civil rights riots and a lot of burnt out buildings and a, a lot of, a lot of you know, social issues, a lot of political issues that existed in East Orange and were very persistent um, and pervasive in our education and academic environment. So. Um, I will say that I had some of the most loving, caring educators, but the lens by which we saw the world was very much based in a lens of like the, 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 the permeating social culture, and that's in the arts and in music and so on and so forth. So it should shock no one that myself or anyone else in East Orange growing up as a kid, we were deeply impacted by the way that we made music. We were deeply impacted by um, about poetry and arts, but there was very little conversation in the environment about um, technology. There was very little conversation in the environment about um, innovation, about those things, because that's not the way we saw ourselves in the world. So when I look at today, and I think about my experience in East Orange, these are the benefits that, that existed, from, existed from living there, and then these are some of the things that could have been improved. Um, first of all, I was around some of the most creative people ever. 
um, people who could create from something from absolutely nothing because we had nothing. There was nothing there. Um, but the shortfalls were very real, right? Um, we, you know, I'm a, a you know 80s and 90s kid growing up, so you know every single thing everyone hears about the crack cocaine epidemic, all that stuff. That's in my entire background with you know even my family members. I've made, um, I have not hidden or made any secret of the fact that my father became addicted to drugs when I was a little girl. Um, and my father, uh, both of my parents ended up being HIV positive. My father died um, in the mid 90s and that was a thing that very much rippled through my life, right? It's probably why, is the impetus behind why I was so attracted to the prescription drug monitoring program. Um, my mother, um, brilliant woman. She's, she's alive today, just so everyone knows. She's alive today. She actually lives with me. Um, but my mother, um, after my father died, ended up going to school actually for computer science programming. She wanted to get ahead of it um, before Y2K. She had a pretty good about 10 or 15 career, year career before she began to fall ill. Um, but even then, I just could not see myself in that space. And this is when inequity comes into play. Students who cannot see themselves even when I had a mentor sitting right next to me and my mother. Um, that's not the world that I saw myself. And I didn't see myself as a participant in that space because it just didn't seem connected to something I was interested in. It, it really is that simple, right? Um, when I saw myself connected to solving a problem for prescription drug monitoring, I could see myself learning enough, learning whatever I needed to, to help solve that problem. I could also see ways of, in which the things that I cared about, the way that I could write or the way that I could create or communicate could deeply benefit um, building out a system or a program like that. I will also say that I think that there's this idea that computer science and all the things that come with it are always just about coding. I will challenge everyone to say that based on where AI is going, we should probably just remove that from our thought today um, because I literally have teams right now um, that are using um, GitHub Copilot and other tools and other solutions to significantly upskill and scale how developing and coding is done. And if we can begin to transform and inspire by simply connecting people to problems, um, by allowing them to uh, have every single lens by which they show up as human beings show up in the software space, we'd be better for it. I can tell you the million and one times that I've seen horrible, horrible software that was not built from the lens of equity um, I can tell you the many times where I've seen um, a horrible user experience, and I'll give you a very interesting story that'll bring this to light. I uh, went with a team of people, they said, hey, we'd like for you to put eyes on a design we've built for a solution we'd like to take to market. Um, here's the problem statement. Uh, there is a zip code that is in Columbus, Ohio. And that zip code actually has higher infant mortality rates in some sub-Saharan African nations. And they said, we want to figure out how to build a mobile application to solve this problem. And they put up this gorgeous design. I mean, the design was beautiful, except the zip codes that I'm talking about, when I drive by that area, um, the phones that those individuals will have would not be the latest and greatest iOS design that they had put forth. And I said, so who is it built for then? What phone are they going to have where they can use this device? And why do you assume that the solution is a piece of technology to begin with? Are we sure that that's what the problem statement is to begin with? The people who were in that room were well-intended. They had never driven by the zip code. They had never driven by. They would have noticed immediately if they saw the billboards um, that the billboards that they saw were Cricket. And when you go on a Cricket's website at that time, they surely didn't have the latest iPhone available to those users. And so when you imagine yourself from the lens of the individuals who you're trying to impact, when you use empathy first, you begin to see the world at a different lens. 
one of the things that computer science is greatly suffering from today is just a deep lack of empathy. A deep lack of understanding that you continue to build, people continue to build solutions for um, individuals from the way that they see the world and not the way that those individuals see the world. And when we think about why we can't uh, entice students or get students involved to want to do any of the things, it's what problems are you solving that they care about? There's plenty of them. We just keep proliferating problems every day. Every, you'll see this happen with AI. Every single pe person you know, who's upset about what's happening with AI could equally say, we have a deep need for ethicists, and we have a deep need for more equity in data science, and we have a deep need for more um, data engineers who are more equitable, who are thinking about the data that we're ingesting and how that data is going to deeply impact the way that we show up in the world with all the solutions we're putting. And so all I keep saying is there's a whole litany of students that are out there a whole, a whole army of students that we could um, bring forth and bring into this conversation if they understood that there was a problem to be solved to begin with. But when the people who are creating the solutions don't see it as a problem, they don't know how to connect anyone to try to solve them. I'd like to build on that a little bit, and you've touched on this a few times, about empathy, imagining from perspectives, and even some of the examples you gave. Um, thinking about imagining from people's perspectives and being empathetic, why is intersectionality critical in that work? And how would you address that to, to those individuals who maybe are creating solutions for the wrong problems or going about it in a way that isn't completely empathetic? Sure. Um, so first, let's you know, really think about what intersectionality is. This is a human being um, who has many identities that exist concurrently at one time with none being ranked higher than the other. Um, yesterday, I made a post on LinkedIn and I said, you know, happy birthday, Army. It's equally a part of my identity as a veteran, um, as it is June 1st being Pride Month, as it is me being black, um, as is all of those other things, right? I am a black, gay, female veteran. All those things are true. Um, and so when we think about building solutions, um, from which lens are we building the solution from? And have we considered all of the other ways that which people show up in the world um, from the many, many ways that they do show up in the world daily, um, from things that are seen and unseen. When we think about all the problems that we have in the world today, one of the biggest gaps that we've had is we just simply just haven't had enough people in the room for the conversation to begin with. Um, so empathy is really um, a part of first having humility. Who are we missing and why? Um, who should be here and why? Why are we making assumptions that we shouldn't? What are our blind spots? Half the time, I don't even think people know that they have them, right? And so until you start to engage with other people, you really do miss out on these really interesting opportunities to co-create solutions together that are made for everyone in every part of a conversation. And also this idea that maybe you're not the right one to make the solution to begin with. And that's an opportunity for other people to innovate and create based on their lens and their role, because maybe that's not a role that should be played by anyone else but those individuals who are trying to solve problems for themselves. I just, I want to capture that, that statement and put it on billboards everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, as we wrap up our day, I know you, you have a speaking engagement and, and I would be in trouble if I kept you from it. Our, you, we have educators, school leaders, families, even paraprofessionals, a wide vari variety of roles uh, of, that people play in education as, in our audience. Some final thoughts. I know you can't sum up in a, like, let's fix it with this one magic tip, but some final thoughts to leave them with, um, carrying your story away from this episode 
What, what would you like to leave them with? Sure. Um, the future, especially as we see it evolve, and I really do mean in real time. Um, we think about what's happening with AI. I overemphasize AI because it will have significant ripple effects in the economy. It's a unique opportunity for us to reimagine how we teach by going back to how things used to be taught. Um, the Socratic method of learning and teaching, I think right now is really critical. Um, it's about the problem. It's about the conversation. It's about ensuring that people have a broader lens of all the inputs that might exist and then understanding that the output may be many. It's not about the right answer in the test. It's not gonna be A, B, C, or D. It's instead going to be um, a series of statements that are going to help us really reimagine how we're solving problems. And that requires us to step away from, um, you know, a really measured approach of just giving people information and ensuring that they understand an answer into moving towards a deeper lens into the problems that we have to begin with. I can guarantee you that in an infancy that we are at in AI right now, the proliferation of the problems that we will create will be as vast as the solutions that we build. And that's always an opportunity for people from all different lenses, from the arts to reimagine how user experience works with search. I'm currently playing with Google's new search. I would implore anyone else who can sign up for um, any of Google's labs to play with them. They are changing the way we consume information. It's changing the way we understand it. And as a result, it's gonna be about our students really asking questions, really thinking very deeply about how many, many different things can exist, how we join questions together, how we decouple questions to you know, nest deeply and more deeply into context. Um, and for all of our educators out there, the more we do that, the better equipped they're gonna be for what's coming in the future. Thank you again, Nicole, for your time today. We, we could spend hours and we could go into so many different discussions. I'd like to just highlight a few resources in our show notes from uh, the patent initiatives on equity, computer science, and STEM, and the Department of Education's culturally responsive um, education framework is also available in our show notes. Again, thank you, Nicole. Also, I have to say thank you to our producer of the day, John Ragsdale, and to our audience. Please come back and join us for another episode on Patent Pod very soon. Thank you.